All right, we will get started. Sorry I'm late. Benediction always takes longer than I think it does, but it's good for the families. So we will begin by praying Psalm 134. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So last week I discussed the liturgy of the word, and now we move to the second part of the mass, or the second half of the mass, I should say. If you remember way back the first week, I talked about how broadly speaking, you can divide the mass up into two parts, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so now we would enter the liturgy of the Eucharist. In the old days, it used to be called the mass of the faithful. The reason for that is catechumens who had not yet entered the church through baptism would be dismissed at this point of the mass. And so it was the mass of the faithful because only those who were baptized would stay for the Eucharistic part. You will notice today that it, there is a lot of signs and symbols. Everything is symbolic. There's signs, there's symbols, and they are all pointing to a greater mystery. The thing I have learned a lot being with the kids down at the school is they ask a lot about the symbolism of various things at mass. For whatever it is, the mind of a child is very good at grasping onto symbolism. You also know this because many of you have kids. Kids like to ask what we used to call the W question in seminary, the why question. And often when you're an adult, you ask the why question and there's no good answer, so you stop asking those, right? But kids love the why question. And so they ask me all the time, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? And it's an important question to ask yourself with the mass, because it's been said many times, and there's a book on the old 1962 Mass by this title called Nothing Superfluous. And it refers back to the Council of Trent, who said that there is nothing superfluous in the liturgy. Everything has a purpose. Every sign, every symbol is pointing to something. Nothing is sort of done nonchalantly. Everything is done intently, with intentionality, and with purpose. And so all these signs and symbols are important. There's no way I can cover all of them. So I just tried to catch the main ones going through the offertory and the Eucharistic prayer. So the importance of signs and symbols, I have this quote in number one from John Paul II in Mane Domiscum Domine. And he says, pastors should be committed to that mystagogical catechesis. And remember the word mystagogy means to lead into the mystery. So that mystagogical catechesis so dear to the fathers of the church by which the faithful are helped to understand the meaning of the liturgy's words and actions, to pass from its signs to the mystery which they contain, and to enter into that mystery in every aspect of their lives. So John Paul II is saying people of my oak pastors should make sure that we spend a lot of time instructing people on the signs and the symbols, the words and the actions of the Mass, so that through these signs, they may enter into the mystery which the signs point to. Signs are never an end of themselves, right? A stop sign is not there for the sake of the stop sign. It's there for the sake of you stopping so you don't get hit by a car, right? You have to pass through the red sign to the action, 
to what it's signifying. And we have to do the same thing with the liturgy. It's interesting, seminarians, I always joke that they go through like three phases when they get in seminary. They first get to seminary and they learn classical philosophy. They learn Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and the whole classical world. And they learn metaphysics and common sense and reason and logic. And then seminarians, after two years, they think that metaphysics and philosophy is what will save the church. It's like Aristotle is the savior of all things. And Aristotle is important, and philosophy is important, and I've written books on it, but is not the savior of all things. Then you'll see seminarians, they move to theology. And again, because many of them are intellectual, they think that sort of theology will save everything, and sort of the truths of the faith. And St. Thomas becomes sort of their guide. Once again, theology is important, but it's not the end game. And then you will see them after they get ordained to the diaconate like Dominic will be, or they get ordained priests, and they realize that ultimately the liturgy is where people are going to encounter Christ, and it's the liturgy which is going to save souls because it is through the liturgy and through the sacraments that Christ pours out his grace upon us. And so they move from like Aristotle to St. Thomas to Jesus in the liturgy. And then you'll notice seminarians get very fascinated with signs and symbols and reading about the liturgy. So that's kind of where we are now with signs and symbols. If you look at number two, you will notice that the church cultivates her signs, her symbols from five sources. So everything in the liturgy which I'm going to talk about, and you'll notice things which I've already talked about, these signs are coming from five sources. The first is nature, creation, cosmos. So think, for example, water. In the natural world, water cleans things. So the sign, the waters of baptism, comes from the natural world. The notion of baptism cleaning of sin, it's an idea that sign comes from the natural world. You also see signs and symbols coming from human nature and human culture. So in the ancient world, wrestlers would put oil on themselves so that it was hard to grab them, so you, your hands would slip. So over time, it was recognized that sort of you would oil any time you were about to go fight. And so oil became sort of this symbol of preparation for fighting. And so when you see in the baptismal rite, pretty soon at the beginning, the infant is anointed with the oil of catechumens. That's recalling the fact that now the child must fight against Satan. They are approaching the waters of baptism. They are approaching eternal life. And Satan is now going to try and hold them back in a profound way. So they have to be anointed so that they may do battle with him. So that sign comes from human nature and human culture. Signs also come from the Old Testament. Easy example is the number eight in the Old Testament. It stands for a new creation. And so again, the baptismal font being eight-sided because you are a new creation in Christ when you're baptized. Ultimately, all signs point to Christ. He's the fourth source, the person and work of Christ. So again, using baptism, when, especially in immersion baptism, when you are pressed underwater, it's like you're in the tomb with Christ. And then you're lifted up after your baptism, and it's like you've risen from the tomb with Christ. The sign and the symbol comes from the life of Christ. And then finally, the church gets her signs and symbols from heaven. So think of the servers wearing white robes. Think of the white garment after baptism. That's referring to Revelation, which describes the heavenly liturgy with the lamb on the altar and people saved, the faithful who have been washed in the blood of the lamb, wearing white garments surrounding him. And it's saying in baptism, 
You've become those who have been washed with Christ, and now you can surround the altar of the Lamb. So those are the five sources where all of these signs and symbols and the liturgy and mass are going to come from, okay? So we'll go to the offertory. So if you remember, I ended last week with the prayers of the faithful. So in mass, you would all sit down, and my trusty servers and I would begin to set the altar. And the first thing they do, hopefully, is put the missile on the altar. That's purely practical, right? Because <laughs> I need the missile. And then you will notice they bring the chalice, a veiled chalice, and set it on the altar. And the first thing I do then is I unveil the chalice. And there's our first sign and our first symbol. The unveiling of the chalice references the stripping of Christ before he was put on the cross. So I am stripping the chalice because think about it. Christ was stripped of his garments and then nailed to the cross and offered his body and his blood for the salvation of souls. This chalice, which I am about to use to offer the sacrifice of the mass and which is going to hold his blood, I strip. It's recalling, it's reenacting, it's referencing the stripping of Christ before he went on the cross. It's also worth pointing out, I didn't put it in the notes, but I was thinking about it when I was sitting over there in adoration. I always tell this to young people when they ask me questions about modesty because it's important for us to remember why we veil things. Because we veil things for two reasons. One, we veil things which we are ashamed of, right? If you have a pimple, you put makeup on it, right? You cover it. Or if you have a scar, you may cover it. You're ashamed of it. But the other reason why we veil things, we cover things, is because they are sacred. You think of your precious jewelry. You don't leave that laying out on the counter. You put it away. It's locked away. It's in a safe place because it's sacred. So the chalice is veiled not because we are ashamed of it. It's the second reason. It's because it's a sacred vessel. It's not like a normal wine glass, which I may have you know, in the evening before I go to bed, a glass of wine. The chalice is different. It's used to celebrate mass and to hold the blood of Christ. It's sacred, it's important, and so it's veiled, it's precious. It's the same thing with like modesty. I always reference this in modesty talks. The reason we promote modesty is because you are sacred. The body is sacred, and so it's sort of veiled in a profound way. It's not because we are ashamed of it. So you have the stripping of the chalice. You also have the paten, which is the gold. It looks like a flat plate, which I have. And the paten holds the priest host, the large host for the priest. And the paten references back to a practice in ancient Rome. In Rome, there were many churches throughout the city. And what they would do is at the mass, which was celebrated by the Bishop of Rome, he would take a host and he would break it into pieces. And then he would reverently, or not him, but his ministers, would reverently carry that piece of the host to the various churches throughout Rome. When the altar was being set, that broken host, that piece of the host, would be presented to the priest. And what it symbolized was union with the Bishop of Rome, with the Pope. You were partaking, you had a host that came from his mass. So it was a sign of unity. And so the paten with that host that was consecrated at a papal mass used to be handed to the priest many, many years ago. That practice, of course, is no longer practical, but that's sort of where it comes from. So you have the paten. The paten is taken by me, and then I say, blessed be God, or you guys respond, blessed be God, when I offer, I begin to offer the offerings to God. 
I also offer the chalice, and the prayers are simple. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we receive the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. We are beginning to offer what we have to God. Those prayers with the priest said, which you respond, blessed be God forever, they can be said silently by the priest or they can be said out loud, you have the option. So I present, I offer to God, the paten with the hosts and the chalice with the wine. And then there is the presentation of the gifts or actually the presentation of the gifts become, comes before that where the people bring their gifts up. The history of this was back in the day, the people would actually bake the bread, which the priest would use for the Eucharist, and the people would make the wine, which the priest would use at Mass. There would also be a collection that would be taken up for the poor. And so when the people present the gifts, what it's supposed to symbolize is like the people are offering to the priest so that he can offer to God all that they have. It's like the offering of their entire material world, their wealth, their livelihood, their sustenance to the priest, and they're saying, now you offer this to God. So it's supposed to be symbolic of the priest or the people offering all that they have. And then the money for the poor would then be distributed to the poor. So you have the Eucharist, and then you also have sort of that flowing out into the poor. I should mention that the presentation of the gifts is optional. So at the 615 Mass at St. Mary's, you will notice there is no presentation of the gifts. We just begin with the bread and wine on the altar already. At the 8 a.m. at Cabrini and at the weekend Masses, the gifts are presented. What I think is the most important thing of that is not actually bringing up the gifts, although that's practical. The most important thing is internally what you should be thinking about. Again, if the offering of the gifts is supposed to be symbolic of you preparing to offer all that you have to God, that's what you should begin to be pondering. When the priest is holding up the chalice and the priest is holding up the bread, getting ready to offer it to God through the Eucharistic prayer, you should be going through your heart and your mind and you should be essentially laying upon the altar spiritually your cares, your concerns, your mass intentions. You are preparing yourself through the offering of the Mass, through the Eucharistic prayer, through Jesus Christ, united as you are to him through baptism, to unite your entire being to God. When I was walking out the door in Kiwaskam, I was talking to Father Strand about tonight's talk, and he said, yeah, he said, one of the things that sometimes we, we forget is our bodies during Mass are doing many things externally, but our souls kind of are dead. And when the Second Vatican Council and Pius X and Pius Twelfth were talking about active participation, they were referencing specifically internal participation. The external gestures and the external movements of the Mass should assist us in internally participating in the Mass. So at the presentation of the gifts, the setting of the altar, the best thing you can be doing interiorly is getting ready to offer your entire being to God, which is what you want to do during the Eucharistic prayer. So gifts are presented. Then I say those prayers, which I mentioned earlier, the offering of the bread. And then one will notice that there's a commingling rite. So on the side of the altar, I mix water and wine in the chalice. What is that that is symbolic of is the wine represents the divinity of Christ, 
the godhood of Christ, and the water represents his humanity, and the mixing of them represent Jesus Christ taking on human nature and entering the world on Christmas Day. And so the priest prayers, prays a prayer in secret. It says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And so what it's referencing is what the church fathers used to call the wonderful exchange. And that is the second person of the Trinity, God, became man so that man, all of you, could become like God. Jesus Christ came down in human nature to lift up our human nature into the divine life. And so that mixing of the water and the wine symbolizes the person of Jesus, where he joins humanity to divinity. It also references the fact that through the participation in the Eucharist, through baptism, through the sacraments, we are going to enter into the divine life. Jesus Christ took on humanity so that we could take on hum divinity, especially in the Eucharist, the wonderful exchange. After that comes the incense, if appropriate. As I mentioned last week, I think it's always appropriate. And as you can tell now, I'm in the cloud of smoke, right? And then you incense the gifts in a certain way as a priest. The first thing you do is you make the sign of the cross over the gifts three times. And that's referencing two things. Anytime you see the number three in the liturgy, just think Trinity. Don't overthink it, right? Trinity. So you have the reference of the Trinity, Trinitarian life. And then you have the fact that it's a cross. Because ultimately, the Mass makes present the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So you're recalling the Trinity and Good Friday with that. Then you will notice that the priest swings the thurible three times over the gifts. Again, Trinity. But it's important if you've ever paid close attention to how he does it. So you swing the thurible twice in the same direction and then once in the opposite direction. And what that stands for is the Father and the Holy Spirit, and then you swing it in the opposite direction because Jesus Christ was the one person of the Trinity who took on humanity. So again, it's a Trinitarian reference, but it's also ref referencing the fact that Jesus Christ became man. Because the fact that Jesus Christ became man is why we can receive his body and blood in the Eucharist, which we are marching towards quickly. So Trinity, Eucharist, humanity of Christ, those symbols are just flying about through all of this. Then the priest incenses the altar. This recalls all the things I mentioned last week with incense, where the prayers are rising to heaven, the sanctification of the altar for the sacrifice, but it also recalls the fact that in the Old Testament, in the evening sacrifice, you would have first a sacrifice of incense, a burnt or a um, yeah, a sacrifice of incense, and then after that, in the evening, you would have the burnt offering. And so this is symbolizing that first we sort of have our sacrifice of incense, and then we're going to have the burnt offering, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you will remember, as I mentioned in the Psalm series, which made burnt offerings special, is they were entirely consumed by fire. And so it's a fitting reference to the sacrifice of Christ, where his entire life was poured out to God the Father. So there's also sort of that reference, and I cite Psalm 141 on page two. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. The psalmist is referencing the evening sacrifice of incense, and then the evening sacrifice of the burnt offering, which we are sort of 
alluding to by sacrificing the altar. Then the server incense the priest. I often forget this. I have no idea why I always forget this part, but I find myself turning away, and the poor server is stuck. But he should incense the priest, and then he incenses the people. The reason he incenses the priest is he's essentially sanctifying me. He is making me holy, making me worthy, so that I can offer the sacrifice of the Mass, which I'm about to do with the Eucharistic prayer. So he sanctifies me. Then he goes and he sanctifies all of you. He incenses all of you for the same reason. Because you, in light of your baptism, are united to the body of Christ. You are united to Christ, and you're also going to participate in offering the sacrifice of the Mass with me. And so you sort of have to be sanctified as well. There is also this notion of sort of a hierarchical flowing down of grace. You would see this more in the extraordinary form where they would incense first the priest and then they would incense the deacon and then they would incense the subdeacon and then they would incense the servers and all the way down to the people. And what that symbolized is sort of grace flows from Jesus Christ and then it flows down from the, through the church down to the people. This was a huge idea in the Middle Ages because St. Thomas argued that when it comes to the nine choirs of angels, you have a hierarchy of angels and the grace of God flows from God as the source and then trickles down through the choirs of angels. It's like doctrine going from teacher to student or from parent to child. And so there's that sort of element going on as well where I get incense because I'm going to receive because of my priesthood in the person of Christ, grace, which is then gonna flow out into you guys. Then the priest washes his hands. This was like many things in the liturgy, originally practical. Back in the day when you would receive the offerings of the people, when the people would present the gifts, it was not always the cleanest thing. It's not like now where we go to Stempers and we get those nice wrapped hosts, you know, that are perfect and clean and all that, and they go in a nice ciborium. Back in the day, the priest would have been receiving all sorts of things from the people, food for the poor, the bread, the wine brought up, and so he would have just needed to clean his hands, essentially. But spiritually, it has the meaning of, again, the priest is washing his hands to prepare to, A, touch the host, because soon I will touch Jesus Christ, and also that he may be purified to offer, again, the sacrifice of the Mass. And the prayer of the priest, I mentioned there under 2, under A, wash me, O Lord, of my iniquities, and cleanse me of my sins. So it's an act of spiritual cleansing. So again, all of the things which you should be doing is sort of in your own mind, interiorly preparing for that. You also are going to enter into the mystery of the sacrifice of the Mass. And so when the priest is washing his hands, you should... should should sort of be purifying your minds, getting ready to enter into the Eucharistic prayer. Then the priest says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. So notice again, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice, so the priest has his sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass, but it's also yours. Because ultimately, the person who offers the sacrifice of the Mass is not me, it's Jesus Christ. I am an instrument in light of my priesthood of Jesus Christ as he offers himself to God the Father. You, through your baptism, are joined to the body of Christ. 
And so if Christ the head is offering the sacrifice through his priests, you are joined to the body of Christ as well through baptism. So it's also your sacrifice. That's why I say, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. This is also why you should have mass intentions, right? You should have an intention in your heart and in your mind every time you come to mass. Because in your own way, and we offer the sacrifice in different ways. I as a priest, you as laity, but each in our own ways, we are offering the sacrifice of the mass, or Jesus Christ is offering it essentially through us to God the Father. Then there is the prayer over the offerings. These are sort of meant to build the expectation. We're about to, the bread and wine is about to become the body of Christ, and we're gonna offer it to God the Father. And so the prayer over the offering sort of builds the expectation. Many of them are extraordinarily ancient, like I'm talking 5th, 6th, 7th century. They almost always refer to the sacrifice offered upon the altar of God, and it's to ask a blessing for those who are offering it up. So we say, Lord, we're about to offer you sacrifice. Bless us as we prepare and as we offer this sacrifice. All right. I'm at the 25-minute mark, so let's do the preface, and then we'll take a break. So the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer is the preface, when the priest says, the Lord be with you, and you respond, and with your spirit. And then it goes through the preface. The prefaces all have sort of three elements to them. The first is general praise of God, then there is a particular reason for thanksgiving, and then there is a joining in with the angelic praise. So, for example, Preface four of Lent, it begins, the Lord be with you, and then you all say, and with your spirit, lift up your hearts. Again, we're, we're preparing ourselves internally to pray to God, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Then the priest says, it is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God. That's the general praise of God. Then it says, for through bodily fasting, you restrain our faults, raise up our minds, and bestow both virtue and its rewards through Christ our Lord. That's the particular reason for thanksgiving, for the season of Lent, for the gifts of fasting and prayer and almsgiving, God helping us restrain our faults and raise up our minds for virtue and its rewards. Then there is the joining with angelic praise. Through him, the angels praise your majesty, dominions adore and powers tremble before you, Heaven and the virtues of heaven and the blessed seraphim, so there you have six choirs of angels, worship together with exaltation. May our voices, we pray, join with theirs in humble praise as we acclaim. So you have the general praise of God, you have the particular reason for thanksgiving, and then you have the joining in with the angelic praise. So you sh it should be lifting your mind up into heaven, right? It starts with praising God, a particular reason, and then it ends with the angelic praise. So it's telling you, that you are now joining in of, with the mass that is going on in heaven. Back in the day, there were not many prefaces. I want to say there was like 16. And the reason for that was because the church was hoping they would be memorized. Priests would memorize them. The people of God would memorize them. And they would sort of inform the way you pray, inform the way you think about things. Now we have a few more prefaces, but they're still limited by season and purpose and whatnot, but they always follow that sort of form. So we will now take sort of a five-ish minute break and then we will move to the Sanctus and then the Eucharistic prayer.
All right, I will continue on. So the Sanctus, the Holy, 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 that's referring to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is lifted up into before the throne of God. And he hears the angels saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. So the reason we sing it right here where we do in the Mass is because we are about to enter into the presence of God through the Eucharist and through the Eucharistic prayer. So we take the words of the seraphim, the words of the angels, which they sing in the presence of God, and we, are, we ourselves sing it. You also have, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. That references Christ, what the crowds sing when he enters Jerusalem to be crucified. So it's recalling the angels in heaven and also the crucifixion of Christ, which is precisely what is going to be reenacted or represented, not reenacted, represented in our midst through the Eucharistic prayer. So that's why we have those where they are. Back in the day, the priest was commanded not to say it with the people. So the people would sing the Sanctus and he would actually begin the Eucharistic prayer. The reason for that is it was supposed to express the loneliness of Christ. Christ, when he was on the cross, was abandoned by his disciples. He was all alone. And so the priest, as he begins the Eucharistic prayer, does so alone. He's in the person of Christ, going to Calvary, sort of on his own. Now the priest can say it with the people. All right. Then we move into the main part of the Eucharistic prayer. There are now various options for the Eucharistic prayer. You have Eucharistic prayer two, which I mentioned there in number four, A1, EP2. It is the shortest. It is based upon, depending on which scholar you ask, a text that may or may not belong to Hippolytus of Rome. If it does belong to Hippolytus of Rome, it's extraordinarily old. It would be from the apostolic tradition, which was around like AD 235. In the 70s and the 60s, when this Eucharistic prayer was sort of written based upon this document, it was thought to be Hippolytus of Rome. A lot of people now think that the apostolic traditions is not. It's from like the 5th or the 6th century, but that's what it's based upon. There you have on number 2 on page 3, it says EP2 the second time. That should be EP3. E Eucharistic prayer 3 was supposed to be a blend of Eucharistic prayer 1 and Eucharistic prayer 2, which I just mentioned then you have Eucharistic prayer four, which I have never in my life used. That is based upon the anaphora of Basel. It's a Eucharistic prayer that walks through salvation history. If you know sort of the way Greeks pray, it's a very Greek way of praying. But the Eucharistic prayer that I want to spend the most time on is the Roman canon, which is Eucharistic prayer one. So I'm here on uh, number B. On page three, the Roman canon. So the Roman canon, by and large, is from the time of St. Gregory the Great. Its main parts had already been established then, so that would be the 500s. It sort of became the Roman prayer par excellence. The reason it was called the canon is because canon means standard or rule. And for 1,500 years, from 500 or so A.D., all the way up until 1969, it was the only Eucharistic prayer allowed in the Latin rite. So that's why it was the canon. It's the long one. It's the one that has the various lists of the saints. 
It has various gestures, which is why I figured I would spend time with it, because it has all these gestures. So it begins, to you, therefore, most merciful Father, we make humble prayer and petition. And you have the gesture of the priest raising his eyes to heaven. So immediately, that reminds you that the Eucharistic prayer is directed towards God the Father. That's important to realize. It's not directed towards you. During the Eucharistic prayer, you're not praying to me, and I am not praying to you. We're both praying to God the Father. To you, therefore, most merciful Father, we make humble prayer and petition through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And then you will notice that the priest makes the sign of the cross over the gifts. In the 62 Mass, there were precisely 33 signs of the cross throughout the Mass, one for, the life, for each year of the life of Christ. Those have been reduced, so there's only now one sign of the cross during the canon. Then there's this reference of Mary, Joseph, the apostles, and early Roman martyrs. Above that in D, I should mention, there's a pause early on in the, in the Roman canon, and I try and emphasize the pause. It's a pause to pray for the living, or if you're, offering the, if you're the priest offering the mass, you can recall your mass intention. And so that's why I always pause. If you notice, I will often pause and look to my right, because on the altar, I have the mass intentions cut out right there. And so I pause, and I look right at the mass intention. So I am recalling the mass intention so what you should do is you should recall your mass intention. Why are you here in that first pause? Then you have Mary, Joseph, the apostles, and their early Roman martyrs. You will notice that Dominic's really good at it. Nicholas is really good at it. Father Matthew Kirk is really good at it. It was pounded into my head as well. That throughout the mass, and especially through the Eucharistic prayer, you will notice that the priest bows his head at four different times, at four different names. He bows his head at the name of Jesus. He bows his head at the name of Mary. He bows his head at the name of the saint of the day. So if you're celebrating the feast of St. Agnes and she's mentioned any time during the mass, you will bow your head. And then traditionally, the priest would bow his head at the name of the Pope in reverence. So you will notice at various times, I am bowing my head at various names during the mass. That's what I'm doing. Then there is the epiclesis and the epiclesis is the calling down of the Holy Spirit. And the gesture which does so, the universal gesture, is the hands like that over the gifts. My good and faithful servers will ring the bells. The bells are rung at three points during the Mass, the epiclesis and the two institutions. The reason for that is apractical. One, it's to recall your attention. If you started to daydream and wonder what you're going to have for dinner, the bells remind you that something important is happening. So it sort of focuses you. Before adoration, I sort of half-heartedly mentioned to someone that exorcists will tell you that the demons hate bells as well. So we should just ring bells all the time, I think. But it's to focus you. It's to remind you the epiclesis is happening and pay attention. And this would have been very important back in the day before microphones, when the Eucharistic prayer would have been said softly, you wouldn't have known, and in Latin, you wouldn't have known where the priest was. The bells would have told you we're now at the calling down of the Holy Spirit. Then you have the words of consecration, the words in which Jesus will become present. You will notice that I lean on the altar when I say that. The practice of leaning on the altar, that sign and symbolism stands for a couple things. One is it stands for the priest leaning on the rock of Christ. Remember, the altar is an image of Christ. So I am leaning upon Christ. I am relying upon Christ. But also, what I am about to do is to call God down from heaven into a host. 
That is sort of the best thing I can do with my priestly powers. My priestly powers ultimately come from Jesus Christ. My priesthood is a participation in his high priesthood. And so I am leaning on him as I do this priestly act to symbolize that I derive my priestly powers from him. So I rely upon him, I derive my powers from him, and then I say the words, and you will notice I slow down my cadence, which the Missal says you should do. It says you should say the words of institution clearly and distinctly. This is my body, right? This is the chalice of my blood. And then there's the elevation, the elevation of the host and the elevation of the chalice. And once again, there are bells, the triple bells to focus, to drive off Satan, right? To call your attention to it. And then the priest genuflex, and that is an act of adoration. So Jesus Christ is now present on the altar under the appearance of bread and wine, and the priest genuflex to remind us all that we should fall down in adoration. You will notice that I mutter something. I mutter Dominus Deus et Deus Meus. Dominus Meus et Deus Meus, which is my Lord and my God. It's the reference of Thomas when he is told by the Lord to place his hand in his side. I got that practice from when I did a Spanish immersion in Guatemala. At the elevation in Spanish, they would say, my Lord and my God. And so I adopted that. When I elevate the chalice, as I set it down, I also pray within myself, may I be wounded by your wounds and may I be inebriated by the blood and the cross of your son, which is a verse from the Stabat Mater hymn, which we sing at Stations of the Cross. So that's, if you see me muttering, as I said, I'm not losing my mind, or I may be losing my mind, but that's not a manifestation of it. That's what I'm praying. It's reminders to me of what I am doing, which becomes more and more important the busier and busier I get. These are just ways in which I pray the Mass to the best of my ability. So then the Roman canon moves on. And the other gesture which is worth mentioning is the profound bow which I have later on. It says, in humble prayer, we ask you, almighty God, command that these gifts be borne by the hands of your holy angel to your altar on high. You will notice that I profoundly bow. That is both an act sort of of humble reverence, but it also has another symbolic meaning. And you see it when the priest is in front of the altar and he bows. What he is doing, if you think about it, is he is forming a bridge with his body. And that symbolizes what a priest should be, which is a bridge by which you come to our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the word priest in Latin literally means bridge builder. And so the priest forms a bridge with his body because it is through me that you come to Jesus Christ. I'm just a bridge, just pass right on over me, right? I don't matter, Jesus Christ is all that matters. And so the humble bow is me forming a bridge with my body. So that's what that symbolizes. There's a second pause later in the canon when I say, remember also, Lord, your servants who have gone before us with the sign of faith and the rest in sleep of peace. As those words hint, I am praying for the dead. And so when I pause, I pray for all of your loved ones who have died. I pray for some of my family members who have died. I pray for people who have died who have asked me to. I pause and I recall all of that. So at that pause, you also should pray for your loved ones. You should recall to mind your friends, your family members who have died, and you should pray for them, and you should unite them to the sacrifice of Christ. 
And then there's the final list of saints, apostles and martyrs, John the Baptist, Stephen, Matthias, Barnabas, etc. These were essentially highly venerated Roman saints and martyrs. So again, the Roman canon developing in Rome was a very Roman prayer. That's why it constantly references all of these Roman saints. Then there's the final doxology, through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever, and the people have the grand amen. That is sort of the capstone of the Eucharistic prayer, giving praise to God. You all respond amen to essentially everything which we just prayed for in the Roman canon. All the prayers, all the things we ask for, the dead, the mass intention, for peace, for harmony, for unity, the offering of Christ, all of that, you are saying amen to. And then the last thing I just want to mention today is the Our Father. The Our Father stands as the transition point. We transition from the Eucharistic prayer into the communion rite. And so it sort of stood as this summary or this recapitulation of, of the Eucharistic prayer. It was also, ever since the ancient church, a common way to prepare for Holy Communion. We know in the ancient church it was prayed three times a day. It would be prayed at morning prayer, evening prayer, and at the Mass. We still do that to this day. And then there are gestures. And I remember when I was discerning with the Norbertines, the Bishop of Green Bay made this big deal about the gestures. And what he said is that the priest should be in the Oran's position and the people should have their hands folded. And I remember in Green Bay, it caused kind of a stir. And I remember the Norbertines talking about it and why is it important. And I've, I think the reason why it's important is the Oran's position symbolizes the gathering together of prayers and petitions. And that is my job. As the priest, I have to gather together all of your prayers and petitions and offer them to God. That's why I do penance for you guys. That's why I offer the Liturgy of the Hours for you guys. That's why I offer Masses for you guys. That's why I wake up in the middle of the night worrying about you guys. All of these things, I'm constantly offering you to God the Father. The Oran's position signifies that. The job of the laity is not to necessarily gather everybody together and to offer them to God the Father. It's to offer yourselves to God the Father, your marriages to God the Father, and your children. And what I, got, what I get concerned about is when the laity are encouraged to imitate the gestures of the priest. And the reason why it bothers me is because it's actually a shot at your dignity as lay people, as baptized Catholic. It's like, okay, it's not good enough for you to be baptized Catholics. You have to like imitate the priest, even though you can't actually be priest and you're not priest, you have to sort of imitate the priest. And so you just end up being like JV priests. And that's wrong. You as baptized Catholics have a very important role in the church. You pray the mass a certain way and you do certain things at mass. You do lay things at mass. I do priestly things at mass. Dominic does server things at mass. Deacons do deacon things at mass. The guild does guild things at mass. We all have our own roles and they are proper to each one of us. So I do things at mass which you cannot do like consecrate the host. However, you also do things at mass which I cannot do like get five of your kids to mass. There's no way I could ever do that. It's not part of my vocation. It would be terrible. I spend 15 minutes with the K4 kids down at the school and I have to go take a nap, right? You have to do your things as laity and I have to do my things as priestly and deacons have to do deacon things. It's sort of like a sports team, right? 
quarterback guy has to do quarterback things. The running back has to do running back things. Offensive lineman has to do offensive lineman things. And if people don't do their jobs, then everything falls apart. And so we don't imitate one another. That's why I sit where I sit and you sit where you sit and you do your things. And your job has the laity is to offer yourselves to God the Father. My job as the priest is to sort of gather our prayers together and offer them to God the Father. And so that's why the gestures are often different. It's because we have different roles. We have different roles in the church. We have different roles in the world. You do lay things, I do priestly things, and if we all do our job, the church will be very, very strong. And so you don't have to try and do priestly things because doing lay things is good enough for what you've been called to do because that's your job. And I don't have to do lay things. I don't run around and have kids, right? That would be a problem. You'd say, stop doing that, Father. Do priestly things because that's your job. So I do priest things, you do lay things. That's why the gestures are different, and that's why it's okay. It's like Patton said in the Army. He says, look, you got to have some guys on tanks, but you got to have some guys bringing food and fuel to the front lines too. Otherwise, the Army is no good. So that was a big deal back then in Green Bay, the different gestures, and people are like, why can't we have the same gestures all the time? That is why. Because we have different roles, and that's okay. We all make up different parts of the body of Christ, the hand, the feet, the head, the ear, the eye, the nose, they all do different things. And the body functions best when each part does its own thing. So that concludes the Our Father. Next time I'll talk about the communion rites and then the closing rites. And first I'll take questions. It would be nice and crisp. So the question is, what is sort of the proper way to have prayer hands, right? Because I have my Oran's position. Okay. But the proper way is prayer hands. Now, I'm extraordinarily specific about what I think a proper Oran's position is, right? Because I think if you get too wide, it's ridiculous. You should be nice and tight, right? Football fans, Tiki Barber, remember how he carried the football high and tight? That should be the Oran's because we're Romans. And my Oran's position should not be distracting. And so it's the same thing with, with your prayer. You want to be somewhat comfortable, but it should also be like sober. And we pray like Romans. So I would always try, try and pray like that. But in seminary, some days when I was tired, I'd get a little, get a little sloppy. But my Oran's position, I never let that get sloppy. All right, second question. I'm sure there's a symbolism. I don't know it. I remember one time talking to the head of Chesterton, and he was like, you put your right thumb over your left, right? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, mercy over justice. And I was like, sure, go for it. Mercy over justice. So, yes. All right, and yes. Two things. Wash me, O Lord, of my iniquity, and cleanse me of my sins. Uh, I don't know. It's on a card. Lavabo. Oh, so you're talking about in the 62 Mass. In the Extraordinary Four Mass, you recite a whole psalm that has that as a part of it. So you see at the 62 Mass, there's a card here. That card has the psalm that you would recite. That's why... You, you know how I tell you guys always hand me things from the right? Part of that is just the practical nature that the priest has to go to his right because if he doesn't know the prayer in Latin, he's got to read it off the card. So, I like it. He said if your hands are pointed down, it's bad news. You're going to hell. If your hands are pointed flat, you're going to purgatory. Fingers are pointed up, go to heaven. I like that answer. Someday I'm going to say that's what it stands for. That's excellent. <laughs> Nothing superfluous, right? Nothing superfluous. Excellent. Excellent. Any other questions? Yes. 
Yes, so it was one of those things where the bells were mandatory and then the bells became optional. And then they sort of fell out of favor and then they came back, as many things have come back. In the seminary, we didn't have bells. Um, this is recorded, so I have to be careful. Because the priest, the beloved rector of the seminary, who was a great guy, I, I had loved him. But for whatever reason, he hated bells. And so we never had bells. So once the new rector came in, it was like his third mass there, and he had bells back. So that's why. It became an option. So even to this day, they are optional. Really? It must be religious sisters teaching that, right? That's good. See, the sisters are great like that. They come up with these things. So the question was, what is the proper sort of bodily posture or action when I genuflect after the consecration? There's nothing prescribed. What is interesting is all of those things which you mentioned are just good, pious devotions. I've seen them all. Which, what was interesting, I used to notice this because I would always sit in the back at seminary because all the best Catholics always sit in the back. So it's like, you see the back row back there? Those are all the good Catholics. In fact, my last year of seminary, the deacons got in trouble because we all always sat in the back. And so they were like, you guys got to move up. But then, so that we did for like two weeks and then I was in the back row again. But what was interesting at the seminary, and we were never taught this, it just happened, everybody would bow their head. You would just see the entire chapel bow their head. I think it was just an act of devotion. It's guys are praying the mass. They see the elevation, so they lift up their eyes. Some guys would sign themselves. And then when the priest genuflects, they just bow their head. So there's nothing prescribed. All of those gestures, I think, are good. Because the point of all of those gestures are to remind yourself what you're doing at mass, right? You guys know how this is. I know how this is. You have a million thoughts, and it's easy for your mind to wander. And all of those gestures or those little you know, symbols they just remind you, they refocus you. It's a way to sort of remind yourself Jesus is present, right? So I like all of those gestures. But. So the question is bowing incense. The custom is to bow to anything that you incense. So you will notice I bow to the altar before I incense. The servers and I bow to each other when we incense. It's sort of just a bow of respect or of acknowledgement. So theoretically, in the some of the servers are good, and sometimes I remember to do, sometimes I don't. Like, every time the servers hand me something, technically we should bow to each other. It's the same sort of just acknowledgement. The people bow because they are being incensed. Yep. So anytime you incense something, you bow. You bow before you incense, you bow. And anytime you are incensed, you bow. You are incensed, you bow. So the question is, what do you do when you go to a mass in any language which you don't understand, right? Does it fulfill your weekly obligation? Yes. I was in Guatemala for eight weeks, and I understood practically none of the masses. Um, my Spanish is not very good, as many people would tell you. What I would do in Guatemala is a couple things. One, I paid acute attention to the signs and the symbols, because those you understand, the gestures. So you know when the priest is praying, because he has his orans position. You know when the consecration is happening because of the bells. And then I would just sort of try and enter into the mystery of the Mass. It's like, Lord, I, I cannot pray with the words, but I can pray with what's happening because I know what's happening and I know the signs and I know the symbols. And then I just viewed the language as like sort of a veil of that over the mystery of the Mass that I had to sort of enter into. And in fact, some of the best Masses I ever prayed were in Guatemala because of that. It became like a very contemplative experience where it was just like me and the Lord, and I was sort of just surrounded in this mystery of the Mass that I didn't fully grasp, and I had to sort of humbly accept that. 
And internally, I was extraordinarily active because externally things just kind of calm down. It's like turning off your cell phone, you know? It's like, so that's what I would recommend you do in, in Latin. Um, you know the signs and the gestures, or you, um, and so you can sort of enter into that mystery of what's happening. I mean, that's the best argument for like why mass should be celebrated in a unified way. I mean, part of the reason why Trent standardized a mass, when Trent came about, there were a bunch of rites in the Latin rite that were being celebrated. And the Franciscans, because they traveled a lot, were get, and the Dominicans, because they traveled, they were getting frustrated because their friars would go to, go to northern France and they would have one mass. And then they would go to Italy and they would have another mass. And then they would go to Germany and they would have another mass. And they're like, come on. And so Trent really wanted to make sure there was sort of a standard mass. And so of all the rites that were chosen, Trent selected sort of the way the mass was being celebrated in Rome and standardized it so that throughout the Western world then, unless you were like in a Carthusian monastery or sort of a special rite, you had a standard mass and you could know what was happening. It was a sign of unity. And it was a, it's a very Western notion because in the Greek rite of the Catholic Church, they've always been comfortable with like a million rites. But it's just something about sort of the Western Roman way of praying where it's like, no, we want uniformity. So we're all on the same page. Yep, that is the essential words. That's why I read them off the page. Those words have to be said. So every sacrament have what's called, what is called the form, and I won't go into the metaphysics of it, but the form is the essential words which have to be said, which signify the sacrament. So in baptism, it's I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Mass, it's this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new covenant. In confession, it's I absolve you from your sins, right? I absolve you. So those are the essential words to the sacrament. So even if I stumbled through everything else, those are the words I have to get right. And when I say this is my body, Jesus is present. As far as I know, the hand washing is required. The presentation of the gifts is optional. The priest praying the words of offertory are optional, but I believe the hand washing is mandatory. Now, if you don't do it, it's still a valid mass because you, everything, you have the essential words. It's just... You forgot to do it. I have forgotten to do it once. I think in my practice mass at the seminary, you have to celebrate a practice mass. I think that was one of the things I forgot. But yes, as far as I know, it is required. All right. So I will leave it at that. So next week, we'll talk about the communion rites, distribution of communion, all of that. And then maybe I'll get to the closing rites. If not, that will go to the last week. So if you will stand, I will give you a blessing. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you, God. Thank you all.